Welcome back to the Voting While Black podcast. We're talking with the candidates running for president in 2020, getting real about what they think about race and exactly how they would help the movement for racial justice. I'm Rashad Robinson from Voting While Black, the nation's largest Black-led, volunteer-driven voter mobilization program, a project of Color of Change PAC. This is the last episode of our first season. Our guest today is Senator Kamala Harris, the only Black woman in the United States Senate. She's a lawyer, former district attorney of San Francisco, and the former attorney general of California. She is also the only Black woman running in the 2020 race for president. We dug into her thoughts on tech accountability and how she would change the rules for big corporations. She defended her record as DA and talked about how she would fight for Black business owners, homeowners, and more. We're going to jump right into the interview. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Senator Harris. I'm so glad that you're here with us to talk about racial justice. Not just what you think we need to achieve, but how we're going to get there. Yes. And the role that you see yourself playing in making that change. Yes. So the first thing I want to start is you have been the first and the only um, in so many of the roles that you've had. Mm -hmm. You've been a pathbreaker on so many levels. And I'd love for you to start by talking a little bit about um, a racial justice win, a racial justice policy that has helped to um, advance progress for black people that you are particularly proud of, something that you've worked um, to push and to achieve. I want to talk for a minute about what is involved in breaking barriers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think that... um, I had a mentor once from Atlanta who had been involved in the civil rights movement. He's still there, actually. And he said to me, Kamala, um, be sure you don't make it look too easy. Mm-hmm. And I, you and I both know, so yeah. many of us know, that the things that we have achieved have not come without an incredible amount of hard work and struggle. So let's, for if we can talk yeah. for a moment about the individual, yes, yeah, right, to, to then do it for, yeah. and, and it, as a reflection of what we need to do for all. Um, so breaking barriers, yeah. breaking barriers. I, I mentor a lot of people. I say, look, you need to be clear. Breaking barriers doesn't mean you start on one side of the barrier and you just show up on the other side of the barrier. Yeah. You just show up, right? Mm-hmm. It means you break things. Mm. And breaking things can be painful. And you may get cut and you may bleed. Yeah. It is worth it, but it is not without effort and often a bit of pain. Mm. And so I say that because... We also want to prepare ourselves and each other for the fact that it is always worth it. Mm-hmm. And to be realistic about the fact that when we are breaking barriers, not everyone's going to be with us. Yeah. And there are going to be those who, who create obstacles or there are just institutional and systemic obstacles. But we have to keep pushing ahead because every time we break those barriers, it is worth it. Yeah. And when we break those barriers... It creates a path that is wider. My mother would often say to me calmly, you may be the first to do many things, but make sure you're not the last. So when we talk about then what we do and what we need to do in terms of community, I do look at it through that lens of knowing the significance of it, but also knowing the effort it takes for us Mm -hmm. to actually create the kind of change that you're doing every day. It is not without incredible struggle and effort. So I want to thank you for that. Um, the work that I've done. So I, there are a number of things. I mean, one is 
there is what we have done in terms of the criminal justice system, the work that I've done um, when in the early days, you know, back in the dark ages, in, in the early 2000s, I was elected district attorney of San Francisco in 2003, creating an initiative that was about saying that young men and women who had been arrested for drugs, let's give them jobs instead. It was called Back on Track. It was a model of what could be done to, to, to basically say the war on drugs was a failure. It led to the mass incarceration um, tragedy of America, and there could be a, do, a new way of doing it. And when I created that initiative, DAs around the country were, were literally asked, literally Rashad saying, what does reentry mean? They'd never heard of the word. Yeah. Um, people would say to me, what are you doing? You're supposed to be locking people up, not letting them out. People would say to me, what are you doing? You're giving jobs to them. What about us? We want jobs, right? There was such resistance to it. But we ended up showing that it could work, which was focusing on a population that in large part were 18 through 24-year-olds who were taking a track that re represented to them their only opportunity for economic advancement. Right. And showing different paths. But but most importantly, giving the opportunities that that actually allow one to even step, take the first step on that path. That model that we created ended up being designated by the Holder Justice Department. So under the Obama administration yeah. as a model of innovation in the United States and what we could do in the criminal justice system and almost to a one elected progressive prosecutors around the country will tell you that my early work in that area was a model for them of what was possible, and then they made it better in so many places around our country. I am particularly proud of that. Yeah, We're doing a lot around prosecutor reform right now, yeah. and a lot has been written about your record. Um, what do you say to uh, folks who come from, you know, California, who uh, may have read stories with uh, deep critiques about your record. What do you say to them about both the time that you were serving, the progress that's been made, and what you've learned from that time in terms of where we go forward? Well, look, here's the thing. I'm running for president. Yeah. So I, I want to say this, too, just so we can just set up the, yeah. the context of everything. If you look at who's on that debate stage, there are people on that debate stage who wrote the crime bill, who voted for the crime bill, and people on the debate stage who never had a language, much less thought, about what needed to be done to reform the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. I worked my whole career mm -hmm. on reform of the criminal justice system. So let's put this in context, Absolutely. shall we? Mm -hmm. Let's put it in context. I decided to go up the rough side of the mountain to go in the system to try and do the kind of change that needed to be done. And it is why, then, as a serious candidate for President of the United States, my plan for what we need to do to reform the criminal justice system comes out of my heart and soul, because I know how bad it is, and I know the levers, and I know what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So my plan is about saying we need to end mass incarceration in a way that is about doing everything that is to end the flow. And so that's about looking at what we're doing around drug crime, which was one of the greatest contributors mm -hmm. to the mass incarceration, um, legalized marijuana, um, what we need to do around clemency. I'm prepared to take the clemency process out of the Department of Justice and bring it into the White House because it should not be in the place, which is also the place that convicted people in the first place. Mm -hmm. I'm prepared to say the first step back, which you know I didn't support for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Because it didn't go far enough. Yeah. That... Anything that is a benefit in the first step act needs to be retroactive, because right now it's not. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Meaning it doesn't just apply to the people going forward. It applies to the people who are sitting in jail right now. I am saying that we need to take profit out of the criminal justice system. And that relates to both getting rid of the kinds of fines that are present that in- basically end up incarcerating and penalizing people who don't have money to what we need to do to end the bail system, the money bail system. I am a leader in the United States Senate on that. I'm saying around law enforcement accountability because I know it from the inside. That one, it can't only be about police officer accountability. It also needs to be about prosecutor accountability. Mm -hmm. And that we need to change the standard of proof because as a former attorney general, I know that to say that the standard is was the conduct reasonable that led to this young man being dead is a very low standard. And instead, the standard should be, was it necessary? These are the kinds of changes I'm prepared to make. Mm -hmm. And I can stand up as somebody who knows the system from the inside Mm -hmm. and with an incredible amount of credibility, talk about what I know to be in the best interest Mm -hmm. of justice in America. Mm -hmm. I have, in my entire career, fought for justice. I've had only one client. That's the people. I have never represented a corporation. I have never represented a special interest. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, there's so many barriers to progress on criminal justice reform, on Mm -hmm. any of these issues, right? There are people standing in the way. You talked about some of that right now. How do you see yourself working with movements? Because, you know, we're talking about not just the what, right? And and all of these things are things that um, we would champion, we would push Mm -hmm. for both in terms of how you work with movements and how will you leverage the role of the federal government? Because the vast majority of people are incarcerated Mm -hmm. at the local level. I know. And so what is your strategy about how do you use the role, the money, the resource, the power of Mm -hmm. the federal government to engage so much that's happening at the local level? Right. Well, Well, first of all, just stepping back in terms of the broad picture, here's how I think that, that we deal with it going forward in a more effective way. One is understanding that it is the folks in the movement who have brought us to where we are, and we should thank them. Mm-hmm. It is you. It is, so, it is Black Lives Matter. It is all the people who have been marching and shouting mm-hmm. and putting the pressure on the system. And I am so thankful because it is that pressure that allowed me to do some of the work and encouraged me to do some of the work that I've done. So first, let's thank the movement. And it is a continuous movement. The movement, as we yeah. know, never ends. Absolutely. But that being said then, I think we need to step back and really talk about what the goal should be. Because for too long, I think the conversation is the goal should be safe communities instead of what I would actually encourage the goal to be, which is healthy communities. Because healthy communities are safe communities. Yeah. So then what is the federal government's role in creating healthy communities? Well, under a Harris administration, That's going to include understanding that you can't have a healthy community if that community does not have economic opportunities. So that's about supporting things like entrepreneurship, knowing that some of the greatest wealth of our community, much less the families of our community, have come from small businesses. Harlem thrives, right? Has always historically, and as an example, Oakland, where I'm from on its small businesses, because that becomes then the place where local people are employed, where local people go, and then the business leaders are also civic leaders, they are mentors, they are role models. So part of my plan is to invest $12 billion in black entrepreneurs to help with the startup capital that is necessary to build those businesses that also help the community. 
gain economic power. How do you create healthy communities? Affordable housing, home ownership. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Home ownership, quick, real quick history reminder. World War II. Now, I'm not even going back to 40 acres and a mule. Yep, yep, okay? yep, yep. World War II, greatest generation, thousands of people fought. When they came back, the federal government said, we are going to build a middle class off of your great work in honor of your service. And then infused in these, the great generation, the greatest generation, federal dollars to help them buy homes. Mm-hmm. Guess who didn't get the benefit Absolutely. of that? Absolutely, yep. Black service members. Yep. So then there was this real surge and a disparity. Mm-hmm. Then you look at the decades of redlining, when black families were excluded from buying homes in areas that would see great appreciation of value. Then you look at something I worked on it, it, and, and fought, which was against the five big banks around the foreclosure crisis, where in particular black families had been targeted with predatory loans. And then during the crisis, when Wall Street crashed, the foreclosures happened and we lost homes at a larger rate. Yeah. So that all of that and then other things have resulted in a big wealth gap, which is that black families own one-tenth of the wealth of white families. Yeah. But home ownership, let's talk about specifically that piece, which is that home ownership represents the greatest asset and source of intergenerational wealth of any family. Yeah. What am I talking about? So you have a son who says, Daddy, I want to go to Howard University. Shameless plug. Um, And you say, son, you don't have to go out and take a predatory loan from one of these private service providers. I'm going to take some equity out of my home. Or your daughter says, I want to start a small business. And you say, sweetheart, you don't have to go and take out a loan. I'm going to take equity out of my home. Intergenerational wealth. So here's my plan. $100 billion federal dollars targeted at communities that have a history of redlining, and families who are living in federally subsidized housing uh-huh. to help them with down payments and closing costs for home ownership. Yeah. What do you need to make that happen? Because the banks will spend a lot of money fighting that. Uh, the right wing will spend a lot of money framing it as a giveaway. And so I'm interested in how you think about that proposal becoming reality, given the kind of current climate we're in. Well, I mean, one, I have fought against the banks, and I won. Uh People said that would be the end of my career when I pulled out of that federal negotiation Mm -hmm. and pulled California out. When they were offering us 2 to $4 billion, I ended up bringing $20 billion back to the homeowners of my state. Mm -hmm. So I've had this fight before, and I've won, but it is a big fight. And I would say this. When we're talking about investing in home ownership, everyone benefits. Everyone benefits, not only those families, but those communities, those neighborhoods, all of society benefits. You're talking about appreciating the value of communities, economic value. Listen, let me just tell you something. I am not a socialist. Mm -hmm. I believe in the benefits of capitalism, but I also know capitalism suggests that everybody's starting out on an equal level. And then if they compete, the best do well. But most people are not starting out on the same level. Yeah. So I'm saying, look, I want to help everybody start out on the same level. Yeah. Because I believe that's in the best interest of growing the economy. And when the economy is strong, we all benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So 
a lot of what you just talked about in terms of the economy, whether it's um, small businesses and um, or whether it's housing, technology is playing a deep yeah. role in in supercharging inequality. If you think right. about the role that consolidated um, big companies like Amazon can play in whether or not a small business ever has a life, yeah. um, the tech platforms and yeah. and who gets to be heard and seen, the ways in which algorithms have been used mm-hmm. to market sort of predatory practices. You represent California, which is yeah. the home to so many of these um, big companies and and is where so much of the innovation that can supercharge us into the future. You know, we mm-hmm. use technology all the time at right. Color of Change to reach people. Um, but that technology can also pull us into the past, yes. a past bef- where we lose many of the protections that we've right. won and fought for. What do you see um, a Harris administration doing to ensure that there are rules in the road for these companies that um, have been able to build power and wealth and as a result, write their own rules? Yeah, so there are a number of things. One, there needs to be regulation. Mm -hmm. And there has not been, and frankly, and I know this, when I was Attorney General of California running the second largest Department of Justice in the United States, second only to the United States Department of Justice, I created in the Department of Justice a privacy and protection unit. I took on the tech companies around the issue of privacy. So I know that, and I've seen it, that that Washington is is behind the curve on this. They have not caught up, and there has been a lack of regulation of the technology companies on the issue of privacy, meaning that your personal information that you keep giving this thing, you don't realize it's being used against you. Mm-hmm. And people should be informed of what they're giving up, and they should be informed of how it's being used. I want to protect your privacy. People are making money off of your information, and you're not even aware of it. So there is that piece of it. There is the piece of it that is about how technology, in particular social media, its business model profits off of hate, Rashad. Yep. It profits off of hate. I had the social media people in front of me in in the United States Senate. Like, literally, the algorithms... You start, it's like crack. Mm-hmm. It knows it needs to keep you going because it wants to keep your attention because there are advertisements in there and people are giving them money to post those advertisements. Literally, they are profiting off of hate. So we need to also deal with the business model, which profits off of hate. Third, we need to deal with the fact that they have got to regulate foreign interference in our elections. Because here's the thing. Russia figured out America's Achilles heel, which is the issue of race. When they started doing these misinformation campaigns, they were trying to figure out what would get the American people going at each other to create division because that will weaken us as a nation and they are a longstanding adversary. They tested out a bunch of different things. What would get them going at each other and exposed our Achilles heel, race. So they are manipulating people. It is the latest version of voter suppression because black folks are being targeted by these misinformation campaigns to the point that folks are sitting back and saying, you know what, that's too messy for me. I'm not messing with that. I'm not going to vote. That's yeah. voter suppression. Yeah. Yeah. You hear me? Yeah. So this is how I think about technology. That in addition to, yeah. to machine learning. Yeah. Uh-huh. Very big issue. So yeah. these algorithms, okay, mm-hmm. that also decide what you like, that decide what to market to you based on what who they think you are, right? They are informed by people putting information in. Mm-hmm. This is what 
a black woman between the age of 25 and 30, that's who she is. Well, if it's not a black woman putting that information in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> there are all kinds of stereotypes about- and prejudices. Yeah. Yeah. Built into the system. Yeah. And the thing about machine learning is this. Unlike that police officer who pulls you over where you can read what's happening. Yeah. You can read the body language. You know what you were doing at that moment. You know how he, you're being approached. You know the language he's using toward you. Mm-hmm. You can figure out, oh, I know what's going into this decision. Yeah. You can't detect that when it's coming from an algorithm or from a machine. So that's a very big concern of mine. I've been working on it actually. Um, And there's some wonderful folks who are doing work around, this whole group of sisters who are doing this work around what we need to do around, frankly, racism being built into machine learning, which is also called AI, artificial intelligence. But I also wanna talk about one more thing Mm -hmm. before we move move on. When we talk about black businesses, one of the other issues for black businesses is access to capital, okay? Well. One of the the roots of who gets capital and who does not and access is credit scores. Yeah. All right? Now, the thing about credit scores, credit scores is supposed to measure, basically, shorthand, are you a good bet? Yeah. Right? If I put my money down on you, am I going to get my money back? Right? So, really, it's supposed to measure, are you responsible with money? Here's the thing about credit scores, though. What they measure basically assumes you already got money. They Mm -hmm. measure things like... Do you pay your credit cards on time? And how many credit cards do you have? Well, ain't nobody giving you a credit card unless you got some money. Mm-hmm. Or they measure things like, do you pay your mortgage on time? See earlier point. Yes. Yep. If you don't have a house. You don't, you don't, you're right. Yeah. So here's my point. If it is supposed to measure, are you responsible with money? I'm prepared to actually change how we do credit scores to include this question. Do you pay your phone bill on time? Yep. Do you pay your utility bill on time? Do you pay your rent on time? Because those are also measures of whether you are financially responsible and therefore a good bet for access to capital mm-hmm. by which you can build a business and grow a business, yeah. right? Absolutely. I have two final quick questions. Okay. <laughs> the first is you said something earlier about being a pathbreaker that I thought was um, just so important for, for our members, people who may be pathbreakers themselves yes. or may have people in their lives who yes. are. There are written and unwritten rules that force people to have to be pathbreakers. Mm-hmm. And the ability to get through the door and then to make sure the door stays open yes. for those behind us is similar to what your mother used to say yes. to you. More people of color will be running for office around the country. There are more and more um, folks that are able to speak to the diversity of this country and our progress. What are some of the rules that need to change to keep that door open? And as you have been running and seeing from the media to our voting to so many of the barriers that you have to hit up against, what are some of the things that we need to change? Well, I I hate to sound pessimistic, Mm -hmm. but I'm gonna say this. It's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. I think that to be very honest and candid with you, the rules don't change until we have equal power to change the rules. I mean, one of the reasons that I have run for every office I've run for is because at least it's my personal kind of, it's who I am and I know this about myself. I'm not so good asking for permission. So for me, it's just a better and more comfortable place (laughs) to be running the thing than asking permission. But I I, I mean what I say because, you know, you and I both know this, Rashad. 
um, we will always organize and activate and advocate for change and for the rules to change. But sometimes the best way to get that change to happen is to be the rule maker. And that means back to your earliest point, what is required to be in a position of power. Okay, and so then to that point, and again, I mentor a lot of people. One of the things that I find myself reminding folks of is this, in that path towards success, which requires breaking barriers, you will often find yourself being the only one like you in a room, the only one like you at a table. And the thing to remember is that when you are sitting there, you are not alone. And we are all in that room with you. And you've got to remember that because there is so much about the environment that will suggest to you that it's just you. I always tell people, don't ever let anybody flatter you with saying, oh, you're special. Uh Uh-uh. Because you know what that is? That's another way of saying, oh, you're the only one like you. Which is another way of saying, you're all by yourself. Yeah. No, I come with people. There are lots of us. There are lots of us, including the ancestors, including the people on whose shoulders we stand. And so... Uh, You know, that's part of, in our path, in our fight, you know, toward having equal representation and being in all places that impact us, it's not an easy path. And so there are tools that we have to keep and use, right, to be there. Absolutely. So last question. I'm asking this of all of the folks, all the candidates that we are interviewing. Um, Part of the debate season is that, you know, candidates are coming to black communities and saying um, what they're going to do for the communities, talking about disparities, talking about the issues. And that's important because we've built up the power mm-hmm. to force those conversations to actually happen. And, and I think that that's great. But the thing that is also really important to me and part of why we have Voting While Black and part of why mm-hmm. we are trying to inject black joy mm-hmm. into all of our advocacy, yes. which is not the absence of pain, but the yes. presence of aspiration. I'm with, you. I'm with you. Is that black people have contributed so much to this country. Indeed. So much to our understanding of politics and service. And, and I think so much of the world built, built this country. Like yes. literally, literally and figuratively. Literally. So I'm asking each candidate, Can you tell us some black folks who um, have inspired your understanding of politics Mm. and service and why? Because I think that that is important Mm -hmm. for our folks to know who are the people for whom Mm. you look to and you listen to and you talk to um, as you think about um, what does it mean to lead? What does it mean to drive real change in our country? Oh, there's so many. Um, Shirley Chisholm. Mm -hmm. But a modern day um, Barbara Lee, mm-hmm. yes, a Marsha Fudge, yeah. John Lewis, Andrew Young. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, folks like like Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, California, yeah. right? Yeah. People like Jay Moore, yes, in South Carolina. People like Bakari Sellers, absolutely. They're all over. Yeah. They're yes. all over. People like a Kim Fox in Chicago and Cook County. Yeah. Right? They're around us. You have to see them. Yes. You have to see them to know they're there. 
and then keep them in mind. Yeah. Well, part of this um, work, part of this campaign, is forcing more people to see the issues. Yeah. More people to have the conversations. You on that stage has meant so much to so many, um, and what you are doing to uh, raise, to break open doors, and to raise a new standard, but to fight and to fight mm-hmm. to win. And so I just want to wish you good luck out on the trail. So thank you for joining us um, for this podcast. And we're out. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thank you again to Senator Harris for taking time to talk with us today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to our conversations on the Voting While Black podcast. In our first season, we have had lively conversations with the 2020 candidates. We've heard some candid takes and what these candidates really think about race and how they will make a difference in the movement for racial justice. This is our season finale. Before you go, text, tweet, and email this episode to your friends. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Voting While Black podcast so you can catch all seven episodes. Voting While Black is a national voter mobilization project based in black joy and building black power. We will kick off hundreds of brunches and other events in 2020 to bring black folks and our allies together to get informed about the election. Sign up and be the first to hear about the Voting While Black tour at votingwhileblack.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this show possible, including our own Whitney Bugs, Tanika Boyd, Valerie Brown, Jennifer Edwards, Queasy Chapman, Devorn Humiku, Vanessa Ross, Drew Daniels, Alexis Grishaber. Additional thanks to Ryan Sensor. This show was produced by Color of Change Pack in partnership with Neon Hum Media. I'm Rashad Robinson. Thank you for listening.